Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the fallout from the leaked Pentagon documents on Ukraine, and our defence editor reflects on her most recent dispatch from the front lines. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's the 11th of April. One year and 46 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our weekend foreign editor, Venetia Rainey, assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, defence editor, Danielle Sheridan, and former NATO commander, Hamish de Breton-Gordon. Dom Nichols will return tomorrow. I started by asking our weekend foreign editor, Venetia, for the latest updates from Ukraine. Hi, uh, yes. So let's start on the ground in Ukraine. The main fighting continues to be around Bakhmut. Our listeners will be very familiar with this town in the east of Ukraine, now in the Donetsk region. What we've heard the latest is that the Russian-installed head of the Donetsk region has claimed that Russian forces now control more than 75% of Bakhmut. This battle has been one of the bloodiest of the whole war. We can't really verify that. Ukraine has said that it's still fighting, but it has accused Russian troops of switching to scorched-earth tactics saying that they're destroying remaining buildings, positions with airstrikes and artillery. Um, Maybe this city will fall, maybe this town will fall this week, maybe in the coming weeks. What Russia will have really achieved by that really remains to be contested. We've also seen lots of fighting in nearby and also in Chasivyar. So a lot of concentration still in that area in eastern Ukraine. Over the weekend, Russian forces have kept up a barrage of attacks along the whole of that front line. Kiev said it repelled more than 40 enemy strikes over the past 24 hours. But the heaviest fighting, as I said, remains in Bakhmut. So we'll continue to keep you guys abreast of a story from Russia today. Russia's parliament is expected to vote on a bill this afternoon that's going to make it much harder for Russians to dodge the draft or mobilisation. Obviously, this has been an ongoing problem for Moscow, getting enough troops to fight on the front lines. This new law would allow authorities to serve call-up papers via an e-government website. This is not something that's heavily 
heavily used in Russia at the moment, but something that it's trying to switch towards. And these new amendments would also allow draft aid Russians who were not who, who were not called up, but didn't show up at the military recruitment office on their own. It would issue them with restrictive measures such as travel bans. So this is really the clearest sign that we've had so far that the Kremlin is laying the groundwork for another mobilization of civilians. It might not be called another formal mobilization, but they are desperately hunting for more soldiers to fight as we prepare for Ukraine's counteroffensive. And then the third story I wanted to talk about, and I know Francis will be talking about this in much more depth, but our listeners will certainly be familiar with the Pentagon leaks that emerged over the last weekend, started popping around on Thursday and Friday. There's been a lot of stuff coming out of it around Ukraine's weaknesses, Russia's weaknesses. But I'll just go through some of the sort of lines that we've had today and Francis can dig into that in more depth. So one of the documents that has emerged suggests that the US thinks Ukraine's military could fall well short of its goals for a spring counteroffensive. We've been hearing a lot about this counteroffensive, what, what it will consist of, how much Ukraine has been training for it. It's been unclear exactly what they want to achieve or how they will be able to achieve it. The the front lines have been relatively static for a while now. The US clearly believes that not much can be achieved. They said that Ukraine is also having difficulties massing troops, just like Russia's been having. Ammunition and equipment are a problem and that they just don't think that that much can really be achieved. We also have seen that Ukraine has, in response to the leaks, not this particular leak, but the leaks more generally, has started to alter its plans for the coming counteroffensive. The the issue with all these documents and more more lines will continue to come out, I think, over the next few days, is that it shows where the weaknesses are are in Ukraine's army. And some of it's pretty specific. One of the one of the documents talks about the Tenth Corps being in charge of the counteroffensive. Obviously, Russia just needs to then find the headquarters of the Tenth Corps and try and target it to effectively stymie that plan. So There are some serious issues for Ukraine if these documents are true, which we don't know the veracity of all of them, but it does seem like a lot of it's credible, despite some discussion of some numbers being swapped around in terms of casualties, which I'm sure Francis will be talking about in more depth. I will stop there and hand over back to David. Thank you very much for that, Venetia. Francis Sternley, can I come to you? There's, I know that we've been off over the week, Easter weekend, so there's an awful lot to, to get through. Any reflection on Danny's reporting there, or do you want to go straight into other updates? Thanks, David. I think Venetia's very neatly summarised there the news lines that are coming out of these leaks. And I think they are extremely concerning if they were true about the possibility of success of the counteroffensive already. I understand Ukraine are saying that they're going to have to adapt potentially some of their planning for the counteroffensive given these leaks. Also about the state of Ukraine's air defences. I know the Washington Post and the New York Times have been writing about this as well, about uh, concerns there about the state of the Russian ability to be able to defend its airspace at this critical juncture. So there was also some quite considerable alarm, I think, about the leak of diplomatic cables within these briefings as well, conversations happening with South Korea who were concerned about how exactly they'd be able to send weapons when they're not really meant to do that as uh, according to their own uh, internal politics. So uh, lots to be concerned about. But I do think it is really important as well to throw in some caveats. And I was speaking to Dom this morning. Dom is in an intelligence briefing as we speak and will be on the podcast tomorrow after a few days away. But he and I did have a conversation and Uh, sort of fleshed out, I think, some of the caveats that do need to be thrown in here about the 
these briefings and what they might mean. So I think the first thing to emphasise, and this is very much something that Dom's going to expand on in his newsletter later on, is that there are two aspects of this, which is that the the intelligence and information as ever, are, are different things, that the intelligence is information plus assessment. You've got the raw data and then you've got assessment on top. And what we're seeing in these briefings is data, of course, but data that is out of date, but also assessments that are out of date as well. And in the case of these leaks, they're would almost certainly be a need for the information to be updated in light of recent events, refined as other raw information is made available. A lot of this information seems to be from early February, maybe even late January. A lot has changed in that time. And so some of the assessments that are made in the briefing notes, if they are all accurate, may well have been updated since. And so that is a very important caveat to throw in here. The other is that who exactly is the leaker and how senior are they? And the reason this is significant as well is does it have implications on what further information we're going to see in the coming days and weeks? Is Has the leak, as it were, done? Have they done what they sought to do? Or is this part of a more orchestrated campaign to derail the Ukrainian counteroffensive? Now, there is some evidence that this is more of a lone operative, perhaps not the most senior either, who has chosen Discord, which is a relatively little known social media site, really, mostly used by the gaming community in order to drop these files, particularly the photographs. And it does sort of suggest, in his view, that it indicates a rather rushed operation aiming for bragging rights rather than a coordinated attempt to damage the national security of the United States. It would certainly be a very strange way in which to appeal to the FSB or to the Kremlin itself in order to emphasize that you're a a source as it were you wouldn't go about it in this way if you're operating in the shadows you likely try and cooperate with them directly so that might be suggestive that this is not the most senior figure this is somebody who has had access to perhaps some slightly out of date briefing notes or or uh, briefings that are less significant than some of the very 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 top secret ones and so they have leaked what they have access to rather than it being some sort of huge strategy in order as i say to derail the entirety of the ukrainian counteroffensive so some important caveats to throw in there. But nonetheless, I do think that this is concerning. And it does tally with some of the reporting that we've made recently, of course, about the ammunition shortages. And also, I noted some interesting reporting over the weekend from the Washington Post about uh, the quite how severe the shell crisis seems to be. So they are saying that Ukrainian forces are running so short of ammunition that some frontline artillery units are limited to firing only once or twice a day compared to 20 or 30 previously. And they cite a commander who says, we don't have a lot of ammunition so that's why we don't work a lot so again uh, there is evidence further to the leaks that there may be some accuracy in terms of certain pictures that are being painted by this but a lot has changed in recent weeks in the military picture and there has been considerable I think prioritizing of the need to be funneling more ammunition to Ukraine and more heavy weaponry and of course fighter jets as well we've seen more MiG announcements that have come uh, recently that aren't factored into the briefing notes so again there, there has been shifts and I did know 
note as well that uh, the Kiev have been asking for some more uh, for, for jets over the weekend, but they're also acknowledging that they're not likely to come in the short term, at least not the ones that they want, which is the US's F-16s. The UK has also cast some doubt on some of the analysis in the leaked papers, which suggests that Moscow nearly shot down a surveillance plane over the Black Sea. They are Ben Wallace has said that he thinks that announcement is is not correct and they merely launched a, a missile in the vicinity of the aircraft rather than this being an actual real threat that they were going to shoot it down. So I just mentioned that to again cast some doubt as to all of the claims made in the briefing notes but nonetheless there are causes for for concern that and i think that the the news over the weekend as well that russia has destroyed a depot containing about 70,000 tons of fuel near the southeastern city of U- of zaporizhia as well will will add to that concern that we're in this attritional war now and that the attritional state of things does not necessarily favor the ukrainians in certain key metrics perhaps on the on the manpower front they're in a more stable position than they were a few weeks ago but on some of these others they have not seen perhaps the increase that one would hope for prior to the counteroffensive. that's one narrative that that could be painted from all of this but to end on a more optimistic note in the military sphere it is interesting i think that ukraine over the weekend resumed electricity exports to europe claiming that russia did not succeed at all in destroying the nation's energy system and that's the remarks directly from the ukrainian energy minister Listeners will recall, of course, that the country had to suspend electricity exports in October when Russia began launching regular missile and drone strikes on the critical energy infrastructure. That was the priority at the time. It caused those sweeping power outages for civilians and industries and uh, made substantial uh, challenges for Ukraine in terms of bringing back electricity and other uh, energy sources but as I say they have now resumed exports and this, they claim this will be of course invaluable in order to keep the country functioning but also in terms of uh, finances they're hoping to be bring in I think around 1.5 billion euros from electricity exports that's what they managed to achieve uh, in June 2022 by the end of its sort of year of doing of exportion so uh, that's I think a more positive development in that the defence mechanisms that have been put in place in recent months the ability to fight back against these kind of strikes does show that there have been developments and positive developments that have been made but nonetheless it all really depends we're in a very very thick fog of war at the moment and it's difficult to know whether the briefings are accurate or whether the things have moved moved on. And as ever, Dave, we'll be trying to unpick it on the podcast. Thank you, Francis. Can I go to Danny Sheridan? Danny, you've been in Ukraine the past few weeks. Welcome home. Um, I hope it was a, a smooth journey back. Um, can we talk about your final dispatch that you've filed from some interviews you did before you left the country? You managed to speak to some Ukrainian um, prisoners of war. This is Ukrainians conscripted into Russia's army from from the separatist uh, Donetsk region. Um, tell us about this interview. What was it like? What did you ask them? Yes. Thanks for highlighting my last dispatch that's in today's paper, and it's regarding some very rare access the Telegraph was granted to interview two prisoners of war. They had recently been captured by the armed forces of Ukraine and had been fighting with the Donetsk People's Republic, a separatist brigade, since February last year and were recently captured. Now, the funny thing about sitting down with POWs is that you were told one version of events and it's compelling. So I was told by the prisoners that they had 
not actually been near the front line that they had all they've been doing was guarding buildings something that they like deeply regretted any involvement in but insisted they hadn't been responsible for killing anybody they'd not been involved in looting you know as far as they were concerned all they'd done was effectively be security guards of some buildings that the russians had taken over um, and the dpr but then when we spoke to the officers who had organised this meeting, they said that the two prisoners in question had been found with machine guns and had been fighting in the trenches. So it was it was interesting for me as a journalist to hear that because, you know, when I was speaking to them, their, their argument was compelling. They were absolutely adamant that they had there had been no foul play as far as they were concerned and what their duties involved. Um, and then to walk away from that and be told, oh, that's absolutely not the case, it is quite is quite a, a, a confusing kind of situation to be in, to be honest. But it was absolutely fascinating and extraordinary to, to sit down with these guys and have a conversation. And, the, and whether or not it's true what they're saying, the biggest thing that came through when we were speaking was a deep sense of regret. Now, obviously, one has to take that with a pinch of salt. Who knows if it's genuine remorse? or just what a person is told to say if captured, you know, these are the lines, this is the story you need to say. So it's kind of one of those things you never really know the truth, but, or I, I certainly won't anyway, as a journalist talking to them, but they, they expressed a great deal of remorse for the war and said things like, I never want to hold a weapon in my hands again. They want the war to stop. They feel sorry for the people of Ukraine and for all the destruction that's been caused. Now, another really interesting thing that came out of the interview was just how badly they had been treated by their commanders. They spoke about themselves as being disposables. And this is a word that they picked up because they heard their commanders talking about them as being disposable entities. So this came about, so when I was interviewing the POWs, they said that they were treated badly by the commanders. They were showing very little respect. It was all very chaotic. It was a horrible situation to be in. And because they, these men were both Ukraine, are both Ukrainian nationals that were, so they say, forcibly conscripted by the DPR. Anyway, we spoke to the officers, as I was saying, after the interview, and they explained that they had spotted several trends while interviewing the prisoners of war. And one of them, and these were, they've interviewed many fighters from the Wagner Group and from the DPR and the Luhansk People's Republic. And they said that um, this was where the, the idea that they were called disposable came from. And they said that the men they were interviewing had told them they heard, they heard the commanders describing them as disposables, a term that was restricted only to those from the separatist brigades. So actual Russian fighters apparently were never described in such terms. So if they wanted to go into battle, they'd say, get me a bunch of disposables and put them near the front. And that their own Russian soldiers were always put back further in the trenches. They were never put on the front lines, or even the second or the third. They were always held further back. So it's kind of a really tragic kind of state of affairs when they're using these people to fight their war. And they're putting the people that were forcibly made to fight. They don't... As far as I can see from what I've been told, that there are a lot of them that don't even believe in this war, but they have been forced to fight. And then their lives are deemed so worthless that they're just shoved to the front. And I kind of felt very sad for these people when I heard 
them even referring to themselves as disposable. I mean, fancy that, describing your own entire person as being disposable. It just shows the low self-worth that they're feeling that has come from the top down. So it was just, um, yeah, extraordinary. And there was a lot to take away from it in terms of how Russia is treating its fighters, which is with very little regard for human life and simply as cannon fodder. And that was a, a word when the officers used that they were considered no more than cannon fodder. So if anyone wants to read more about it, the article is in today's paper and it's online and there's a video we did as well. And we have stuck in line with the Geneva Conventions and their faces are blurred. They're not in any way identifiable. Their names have been changed. And we ensured that they were happy to sit down and talk to the Telegraph. They knew exactly who I was. I explained everything. So everything's been done to the highest um, standards. And it would be, you know, I've been really enjoying reading some of the readers' comments beneath the article and it would be great to hear more people's thoughts on that. Can I ask quickly, Danny, what did they say about how they were conscripted or signed up in the first place? So both of the prisoners I spoke to said that they received a summons in the form of a letter telling them to report to a certain address because they would be fighting in this war and if, or sorry, special military operation. And if they declined to do so, they would be imprisoned. So their choices were very stark. Go fight, where I suppose you have a little bit of freedom, or go languish in a Russian jail, which from what everyone ever says about Russian jails is absolute hell. So, you know, if your only choices are jail or fight, I suppose the preference certainly was fighting because so many have quoted that as the reason why they didn't go to the, go to jail so obviously even the prospect of languishing in a Russian jail is worse than putting your life on the line on the front line. Danny you've mentioned how the sort of discombobulating experience of knowing that you were not necessarily being told the truth or or at least the truth was a difficult thing to identify because they were saying one thing the AFU officers were telling you another thing to, to what extent did you, did you think they were telling you what the Ukrainians wanted I mean you said you know you're setting up, setting up this interview you tell them who, who you are and what, what, what you'd like to do when you think back on it how I mean how much do you think you heard that was reliable? I definitely think it, it was reliable to hear them talk about how they were forcibly conscripted because Donetsk region ever since 2014 has been predominantly pro-Russia. It's largely Russian-speaking area. If you were pro-Ukrainian, I think you were in the minority of civilians living there or you certainly wouldn't go around shouting it. And there's Actually, I was reading this really good um, book review by one of our reporters, Colin Freeman, about journalists who described his experiences reporting in Donetsk in, from 2014. And um, he was saying how there was Nazi insignias on walls and, and lots of kind of slogans and posters demonising the Ukrainians. So it's a very pro-Russian area. So it's hard to know if the prisoners were not themselves pro-Russian and now that they've been caught are saying anything to help themselves, which is denouncing the Russian government, saying that, you know, they felt awful that they've been fighting their own Ukrainian brothers. It's really difficult. I 
I all I can say is as a human being sat opposite them discussing their story it felt believable and there appeared to be genuine sentiment in what they were saying however given the context these were two men living and working in a very pro-Russian area who signed up to fight rather than go to jail going to jail was an option obviously not a palatable one but nevertheless there so yeah it's really hard um I can't give you a, a genuine answer as to whether or not I believe their story in full but fortunately for me I suppose I I don't have to get to that point I just need to report both sides which is what I've done and I suppose it'll be something I mull over for a very long time whether or not they were genuine. Absolutely well thank you so much Danny and and welcome home thank you for all your, your reporting out in Ukraine it's been really interesting to hear about your experiences out there and we hope you have a good rest now. Thanks so much. Francis, would you like to run us through some of the most important diplomatic updates and then we'll come to Hamish. Thanks, David. We spoke at length last week about the apparent scoop in the Financial Times that uh, from Andrei Sabika, the deputy head of Zelensky's office. And he said that, uh, or suggested, should I say, and this is how it was reported by the Financial Times and by many other outlets, that Crimea might be up to, for some negotiation if Ukraine ha- succeeds in its counteroffensive. And I said at the time that I was very, very sceptical about about this, And I thought that a misinterpretation of what he was saying was, was far more likely and that it might be more of a ploy from Ukraine to be talking about dialogue, whereas actually the reality is that Crimea remains absolutely integral for their uh, military strategy. And uh, so it has proved in many ways because uh, f- after our broadcast, the uh, Zelensky's office confirmed that there had been a misunderstanding in essence and that nothing had changed with respect to Crimea and that in fact they were as committed as ever to restoring their full territorial integrity. So I do think that there's a mixture of misinterpretation but I think also as well as I say that it's one that arguably benefits the Ukrainians because it enables them to talk, be talking about negotiations and perhaps that alleviates some of the concerns from the Western backers whose support in terms of weaponry for Ukraine is absolutely vital in the coming weeks and months. So a sort of a beneficial misunderstanding in the short term perhaps but maybe as the dialogue changed over the course of the day, they felt it was very important to clarify that they were not weakening their position on Crimea. So I just wanted to start with that. We also, of course, spoke about Macron's visit to China, seemingly to try and persuade uh, President Xi not to uh, support Russia in its support, or apparent uh, support of, of Russia in its invasion of Ukraine, but also to try and sort of change its stance and, and, and give more to, to to the Ukrainians in terms of their sort of support and an and, and understanding of what peace needs to look like that benefits the Ukrainians as well as settling this war once and for all. I was sceptical as to what could be achieved on that and the early signs are not good that there's been a real shift in the position. China has not really fundamentally changed its position on Ukraine despite these overtures. That's according to uh, certain sources coming out of the summit. Of course, Macron was there, so was Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president. And uh, we understand that they did raise this famous phone call that was advertised uh, with China said would they wanted to have with Zelensky. 
and interestingly, China did remark after the summit on this. They said that they are willing to speak with Zelensky, but have not specified a time frame. It will be when the conditions and time are right. Now, you could say that that's them conveniently trying to just kick the can down the road and that they actually have no such intention of such a call. Or it's that they're waiting for the conditions to be right, which is potentially the counteroffensive not succeeding to the degree that Ukrainian that Ukraine hopes. And if that is the case, then it would speak, I think, to what the Chinese strategy may well be, which is wait for this war to get even more attritional for Ukraine to seemingly not make the advances that they hope. And to then there to be this opportunity for China to say enough is enough. This war cannot continue. It's reached a stalemate permanently. And we are going to be the brokers of some kind of peace. And that's the moment when they'll try and call Zelensky. And that's the moment when they'll try and fill this vacuum that we've been talking about that seemingly has been, uh, in their eyes at least, abandoned by the West as being a broker between the two sides. Whereas, of course, from many of the West, in the West's perspective, this is a war that Russia cannot be allowed to have any benefits from because they have essentially launched an imperialist venture and have committed numerous war crimes. So um, an interesting development, but certainly from my perspective, an unsurprising one. The one other detail I just wanted to talk about in the context of this Macron visit to China is... He made an interesting remark on the plane, which has been reported by us and by some of the other um, French outlets who were also present, which is that Europe must not be a follower of the US agenda when it comes to tensions between China and Taiwan. And I'll read the quote in full. The question Europeans need to answer is the following. Is it in our interest to accelerate a crisis in Taiwan? No. The worst thing would be to think that we Europeans must become followers on this topic and take a cue from the US agenda and a Chinese overreaction. Now, this doesn't come necessarily as a huge shock. Quite often, Macron and France have the view that they believe in this kind of strategic autonomy, that their country should have a different defence policy, perhaps, than the other Western allies. But the timing is unfortunate, I think, which is why, of course, Macron seemed to want to censor this. And this has only been reported despite the Elysee Palace trying to actually change the transcript of what Macron said, which is pretty standard fare in France, that journalistic outlets, if they get an interview, have to agree that the Elysee gets final say in what is printed and being attributed to the president. Uh, He tried to stop this from getting out because seemingly it would damage this sort of Western unity argument. But he has not succeeded in that. It's made it out anyway. And is quite revealing, I think, about some of the different tensions within the Western alliance, if we can articulate it as such at the moment, about the situation that's developing in between uh, Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan and this side of idea of autocracies versus democracies. As we've spoken at length in the past, France and Germany have an attitude more about forging closer ties with China in order to try and alleviate some of the risks of there being this complete sort of severance and separation into these two blocks. But listeners will know of course my view that that may not be actually possible in the long run and that this is uh, of course very very difficult to do to try and keep China on side when you're actually not willing to really threaten them with anything and so I think really as things stand this has not really been the great triumphant success that Macron was hoping for but really what he expected I don't know because it doesn't seem to me he had really much leverage in going there at all. Just another couple of diplomatic updates staying on China briefly Brazil's president is planning to meet there this President Xi this week. He's going there to discuss trade and Ukraine mediation. He says 
hoping to formulate some kind of a caucus of countries that uh, want to be involved in these mediated talks that China broker. And clearly, this is part of China's diplomatic plan is to use this umbrella of future negotiations with China being the key mediator as a means of forging closer ties with certain countries around the world, certainly emerging economies of which Brazil is one. I think this should all be seen in that context of China very much using this moral argument as a justification for closer ties with certain countries. And the question is, is whether those countries are being duped or whether this is an authentic attempt by China to fulfil some kind of role in the world that it feels it has not had for some time and that it deserves as a great emerging power. But nonetheless, a subject that we could go on endlessly about. Just another couple of quick updates. Uh, Belarus, um, Alexander Lukashenko, president, of course, has uh, reportedly told Sergei Shoigu, Russia's defence minister, that he wants guarantees that Moscow would defend the country if it was attacked. Now, whether this has been designed for a domestic audience or an international audience to build up this idea of there being closer ties between the two countries... We don't know, or whether this is a genuine, it's too early to say, but I think I would lean towards the former. This is an attempt to, again, talk about the growing or talk up the growing alliance, apparently, between these two countries. Something, again, we'll be monitoring this week. And then just lastly, on Poland, Poland's prime minister has flown to the US today in order to attend meetings aimed to strengthen economic and defence cooperation between the two countries amid the war in Ukraine. Yet further evidence of Poland's increasingly important role in Central and Eastern Europe as a consequence of this war. And they're seeking to uh, rearm and remobilize in a way that has, I think, surprised many in Europe, but has received plaudits from from Britain and from America in particular, with regards to the way they have approached this war and the sort of no quarter that they've had with regard to Putin and the need for there to be uh, no negotiations with him. So a quite interesting developing picture in the diplomatic sphere and I know I always say that but a lot happening and I think that the the pieces are in alignment all waiting to see what's going to happen with this counter-offensive and as I say we'll be obviously waiting with bated breath to see what happens. Well thank you very much for talking us through all of that Francis. Hamish to Bretton Gordon you've been listening. First of all you have a few thoughts about these leaks from Washington. Can you talk to us about them? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. And one who worked in the sort of intelligence world when I was still serving, it really did pick up my ears when I heard about this. I think the first thing I'd say is the battlefield is always confusion. And it's the person who can work out through the confusion and get some sort of clarity is the person who is going to have the advantage. So at the moment, the battlefield in Ukraine is massively confusing uh, probably for both sides. And um, one, one can wonder who will benefit most from this. But I'm not going to cover w- what's already been said. I, w- I would also, you know, th- this is a massive leak of, of intelligence. And I, I just can't imagine how it could have happened. So on the face of it, hugely embarrassing for the Pentagon. And one will see see what comes from there. But also, I know this is top secret information. And I don't want to sound trite. But you know, top secret information or intelligence is, you know, there are still several layers above this where the really detailed, uh, interesting stuff is is happening. And if you are relying on your battle plans for intelligence that's over six weeks old, then that is probably 
you know, not a not a great place to be. It was interesting to see that the Russians immediately doctored some of the stuff that came out at the beginning of the weekend to, uh, I think it was on their, their casualty rates. So, yeah, I think this is a obviously hugely significant, but confusion on the battlefield, especially if we are now looking into the next phase of this, is probably something that the Ukrainians would want. So I think it's uh, it's probably damaging in some areas, but I, I don't think this is quite where we should lose any faith in, in the Ukrainian forces and their ability to do stuff. And really interesting hearing the stuff Danny's talking about, you know, those prisoners on the front line, which we always sort of knew, the, you know, I, I hate to say cannon fodder, but uh, that is the way that these people are being used. And you've got the Russian elite forces behind forcing people forward. So ju- just a piece on the intelligence there, sure stuff to come out, but it adds confusion, which in some respects, you know, bizarrely will benefit the Ukrainians rather than the Russians. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Hamish. We've just seen an update on The Telegraph's live blog. This is a quote from Mikhailo Podolyak, the advisor of President Zelensky. He says, Ukraine needs more long-range weapons and less contemplation on leaks to properly end the war. Quote, if we had time, we could watch the Russian Federation fall apart and its elites devour each other, but we don't have it. As our people are dying, we need less contemplation on leaks and more long-range weapons in order to properly end the war and make the Russian Federation face the reality. Hamish, just, just very quickly, your reaction to that. I mean, that certainly shows us, I think, how the, Ukrainian, the Ukrainians are, are, are trying to, to treat this. Absolutely. It is, it is no secret, <laughs> bizarrely talking about leaks, that, that the counteroffensive, you know, the preparations are going in great detail. And uh, the preparation of, of the battlefield, as we call it, really requires, you know, these precision strikes deep Crimea or wherever else the offensive is going to be focused. So the ability to take out those particular areas. And you might have seen the report that that was on the British intelligence uh, site this morning about the Russians moving thermobaric missiles, bizarrely, from the chemical and biological troops to the VDV, the so-called, you know, airborne troops. Again, you know, that seems a little bit strange. But I think uh, the preparation of the battlefield, the deep strike is key because, you know, those potentially those weapons that might really have an impact on, on the uh, counteroffensive are at the moment going to be held at deep. So if they can do that, and again, what the Ukrainian commanders will want to give is lots of different pro- problems to the, to the Russians. So if they can attack them in the deep and attack them in the, in the up front, it confuses them. I mean, I, we, we discussed briefly on the pod on Thursday the fact that Finland has now sealed up the northern flank of Russia, Now, Putin has got half his eye on the northern flank there as well. So all this confusion is creating challenges for both sides, admittedly, but the person who can deflect it. So I think, you know, that absolutely the Ukrainians, of course, want absolutely everything that can be provided. And I personally believe where we can, we should be doing that. There are concerns that, you know, particularly with some NATO countries that they don't empty their stores too much. But, uh, yeah, I think this is the next stage along. I'm sure we're hearing about F-16s. Um, I saw various bits and pieces this morning and yesterday where the Ukrainians are trying to start up a foreign legion squadron, as it were, with you know, F-16 pilots who could potentially fly F-16s in that, in, in that fight. So, a- absolutely, I think you know, there is so much going on at the moment. 
and I expect and so much information coming in from left, right, above and below, again, on this confusion side, I expect it is not all accidental. Thank you, Hamish. Just one question from, well, two questions from me, actually. You you mentioned earlier the update you'd seen that Russians were moving thermobaric weapons to the VDV. And you said that was strange. Could you just tell us, explain why why is that odd to to non-military listeners? And as you said, it is confusing. There's a lot of noise coming out. Would you be able to give us your sort of, your summary of the most important points over the past few days, just to try and cut through that noise? Thank you. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. Uh, yeah, the, my, my mistake. Thermobaric. Basically, these are fuel air explosives. I, I saw it very close and personal in the first Gulf War where the Americans dropped massive thermobaric bombs onto the minefields that the Iraqis had developed. And actually, the first Gulf War situation is not dissimilar to what we're seeing at the moment, you know, massive defensive lines. But these thermobaric create a massive explosion and actually create a huge vacuum. And that vacuum detonates anti-tank mines, collapses tunnels and bunkers, and is incredibly destructive. That I saw a rather unpleasant Russian who seems to follow me on Twitter responded to me earlier today saying that actually the Russians had upgraded their thermobaric missiles, the TOS-1, I think it's called. These are really massive bunker busters and to be used to destroy minefields. The fact they're going to airborne troops seems pretty strange to me. You know, you can't imagine airborne troops using it unless the Russians are planning some sort of incursion, you know, deep into Ukraine and using airborne troops to drop them in. But you guys probably know better than I, but I understand these airborne troops have been pretty much decimated. And you can't you can't give a fellow a day's training and then push him out of an aeroplane or push him out of a helicopter, particularly on a parachute. I mean, that that would be completely incongruous. Although hearing what Danny was saying earlier on in the pod, you know, maybe we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't completely dismiss that. But on to the main events that, that, that have been happening over the last few days, you know, just before the Easter weekend, there was the, the talk about potential that Zelensky might... Uh, negotiate Crimea away, as it were, in some sort of deal. You know, I I think that's been pretty much sort of firmly slammed now that, uh, you know, the Ukrainians absolutely see Crimea as Ukraine. It was illegally taken in 2014. And, the you know, I I cannot conceive any way that uh, that the Ukraine government would um, negotiate that, that away in any some form. What I think has also been interesting is, and I sort of talk about the first Gulf War scenario, a very similar challenge that the Ukrainian armoured manoeuvre troops that they're getting get together at the moment will face, that we faced back in 1991. And against similar equipment, you know, the, the Russians have pretty much got T-72s and T-64s left, which is what the Iraqi army had. And uh, similar probably scale. So, you know, which is why I'm slightly more confident that uh, hopefully they will have enough Western tanks to lead a punch through a massive defensive system, which, again, the Telegraph covered over the weekend. But once you punch through that, that there is a lot of ground to go there. So the leaks thing, I won't go on. I think that has strategic implications, perhaps both talk about further long range weaponry. Absolutely, that should happen. But I think we are... I noted that there was a piece, somebody tweeted today that the ground is firming up and spring and early summer is beginning to arrive. So lots of stuff going on. 
the confusion I think will get more and more. And I think, you know, everybody is assuming that we're going to have this armoured thrust down the middle into Crimea. But uh, yeah, who knows? And uh, the only uh, the final thing I would say on that, we, we know that the Russians have a lot of strategic forces in Crimea and you know, they must be getting a little bit concerned. You can imagine if the Black Sea fleet didn't manage to to get out and fell into Ukrainian hands, that really would see the end. And I, I said at the very beginning, the other huge piece was Finland becoming the 31st member of NATO. I think that's absolutely fundamental. You know, I, I know that some one of my fellow military commentators suggested this was not a huge event. To me, Finland is probably the most powerful uh, European army, uh, European military, and, you know, and has produced absolutely the opposite that Putin was hoping by invading Ukraine. So lots of stuff going on, lots of confusion. And you guys got a huge challenge trying to unpick it, I suppose, over the next few weeks. But uh, yeah, a lot will start happening, I'm sure, as, as everything warms up, you know, physically and metaphorically in Ukraine. Thank you very much for that, Hamish. Francis, I know you've got a few updates from Russia for us. Can you talk us through them? Thanks, David. Another subject we spoke at length about last week was the apparent assassination of Vladimir Tatarsky, the pro-Wagner blogger who was essentially supporting the ideas of war crimes in Ukraine and just generally was seen as one of the Wagner Group's great champions in its battles around Bakhmut and elsewhere. And his funerals over the weekend on Saturday, there were hundreds of Russians queuing at a Moscow Cemetery to mourn him. Uh, Yegevny Bogosian, head of the Wagner Group, was there. He placed a sledgehammer, an unofficial calling card, of course, for the uh, for the group next to the grave. And he said he is a soldier who stays with us, whose voice will always live and speak only the truth. We understand security was very tight. People had to pass through metal detectors in order to join the queue. There was a, lots of people were wearing black, were wearing insignia associated with pro-war stances, bearing the Z and the V pro-war symbols. Interesting, there was no representative from the Kremlin, although, as I said last week, Putin did posthumously award Tarski a medal for bravery, which is incredibly revealing given the remarks of Tarski as to the support that tacit support Putin is willing to give to those who are championing war crimes in Ukraine. And I think it marks not a shift as such, but an increasing openness to be open about the uh, vicious nature of this war as uh, perpetrated by Russia, perhaps in an attempt to show that they have absolutely no desire to withdraw and will fight to the end, whether that be true or... But what's interesting on on Prigozhin again is the Institute for the Study of War has put out an interesting report today about how Prigozhin is reportedly advancing his political aspirations by seeking to gain control of a Russian political party. The party is called Adjust Russia for Truth. And apparently he wants a leadership position within that party in a bid to compete with St. Petersburg's governor for influence in that city. Now, why this matters, of course, is that Prigozhin and uh, the Wagner group have been isolated increasingly by the Kremlin in recent months due to their failures in Bakhmut. And uh, it would seem that uh, Prigozhin is now trying to garner some political influence, perhaps to rebut the Kremlin, to challenge the Kremlin's uh, view on the war, perhaps even to challenge Putin himself. And so I think it's something that that is 
we were speculating for a long time as to what Bogosian's real motives were. And it does seem now that a political role of some kind, political influence, perhaps a political party, is his overall objective. And he's using the war as a means to achieve this. It would also perhaps paint the assassination of Tatarsky in a different light because it would suggest, as we were speculating last week, that it may have been more likely uh, an assassination from the Kremlin in an attempt to send Prigozhin a message that those who are supporting you are uh, targets. It was, of course, happened in Prigozhin's city. It happened in a cafe owned by him. Uh, it, it just this, the, the way in which this is timed just seems very interesting and revealing to me at least and so that will be something I'm sure that we'll be talking about later and it'll be good to get Natalia on to talk about that um, just another couple of things on Russia uh, the, there's been a pair of protesters who have been sentenced to 19 years in prison in trying to set fire to a military recruitment office back in October when of course there were those uh, huge mobilisation efforts now it's a 30 27-year-old firefighter and a 27-year-old driver in the Russian National Guard. They were supposedly out celebrating a birthday when they walked to the administration building in the city of Bakhal and hurled three Molotov cocktails at it. The blaze was promptly put out by a night guard, but an employee testified in court that the fire could have destroyed the military records of about 4,000 men and thus paralysing local efforts in in an attempt to uh, mobilise more in that region. So what's, I think, the most revealing thing about this is that before the war, arson attacks uh, would have been met with a suspended sentence. But Russia's parliament amended a criminal law last year that allows prosecutors to qualify such crimes as terrorist attacks. And so whatever their intentions here, whether it was a a drunken incident, whether it was a deliberate attempt to protest against the mobilisation efforts, it just shows how the domestic picture has changed to the point that uh, such attacks, uh, such arson attacks, which previously would have not received serious sentences, can now get you behind bars for almost 20 years. And uh, a country that feels secure in its domestic sphere, I don't think would do this. And again, it speaks to the threat that apparently is being posed internally by what is going on in the war in Ukraine. And just lastly, because whenever there's an update in this space, I try to talk about it. Um, Both James and uh, Natalia have been Uh, looking at this over the weekend I understand that another 30 Ukrainian children abducted by Russian officials during the war have been reunited with their families this follows a a very complicated operation which involves getting them out of Russia then uh, travelling them through via via Belarus into Kiev it's been organised by the Save Ukraine charity and we're hearing some more about the conditions in which these children have been kept in. They've claimed they've been living with rats and cockroaches. They've said that uh, we were treated like animals. We were closed in a separate building. Those were there were saying that the children were changed locations five times in five months. Some saying that they were living uh, in infested places and that they were told that they would be uh, staying far longer in certain places than they were originally told so that they would be then adopted by new guardians and so it paints a very very miserable picture and we've done a report on this online that goes into more detail about what they've said so I would certainly point listeners to that but lots happening David both diplomatically internally in Russia and militarily but everything I think is resting in many ways on this counteroffensive and and what happens next Thank you Francis can I get both of your final thoughts before we end today Hamish to Bretton Gordon would you like to go first what will you be looking at over the next few days where would you direct our listeners to put their attention to well, I, ju- I just reiterate what I said earlier. Obviously, with the build-up to what is going to happen in the spring and the early summer, there will be so much 
stuff, for want of a better word, coming in and the confusion will grow. So don't take anything at face value. We'll try and unpick it to what it really means. But uh, I am still overwhelmingly confident in the Ukrainians' ability to put together this counteroffensive. And at some time of their own choosing, at their own place, they will unleash it. But between now and then, there will be so much uh, various bits of contradictory information and intelligence coming in. It will be difficult. But I would say to everybody, yeah, don't, don't try and don't lose faith, as it were, because the confusion on the battlefield is something that will benefit uh, those who can see through it. And uh, the confusion is, is always the massive challenge to get through. And the more confusing it is, I expect, will benefit uh, the Ukrainians than the Russians. So lots of stuff coming, I expect, in the next few weeks. Thank you very much, Hamish. Uh, Francis Stanley, would you like the very final words? Thanks, David. I've referenced in the past the trial of Vladimir Kalamuza in Moscow, the Russian political activist and vice chairman of Open Russia, which promotes democracy in the country. Now, how widespread and how appealing such ideas are in Russia remains an open question, though I would argue the fact that the state terrorises those who advocate for them suggests that their proliferation is far from impossible. Now, that certainly seems to be the view of Mr. Karamuza, who's delivered these remarks yesterday at the closing session of his trial in Moscow. And I just wanted to let him speak for himself as part of the final thought today. Members of the court, I was sure after two decades spent in Russian politics, after all that I have seen and experienced, that nothing can surprise me anymore. I must admit that I was wrong. I've been surprised by the extent to which my trial, in its secrecy and contempt for legal norms, has surpassed even the trials of Soviet dissidents in the 1960s and 70s. And that's not even to mention the harshness of the sentence requested by the prosecution or the talk of enemies of the state. In this respect, we've gone beyond the 1970s, all the way back to the 1930s. For me, as a historian, this is an occasion for reflection. I'm in jail for my political views, for speaking out against the war in Ukraine, for many years of struggle against Vladimir Putin's dictatorship, for facilitating the adoption of personal international sanctions against human rights violators. Not only do I not repent of any of this, I am proud of it. I blame myself for only one thing, that over the years of my political activity, I have not managed to convince enough of my compatriots and enough politicians in the democratic countries of the danger that the current regime in the Kremlin poses for Russia and for the world. Today, this is obvious for everyone, but at a terrible price, the price of war. In their last statements to the court, defendants usually ask for an acquittal. For a person who has not committed any crimes, acquittal would be the only fair verdict. But I do not ask this court for anything. I know the verdict. I knew it a year ago when I saw people in black uniforms and black masks running after my car in the rearview mirror. Such is the price for speaking up in Russia today. But I also know that the day will come when the darkness over our country will dissipate, when black will be called black and white will be called white, when at the official level it will be recognised that two times two is still four, when a war will be called a war and a usurper a usurper, and when those who kindled and unleashed this war, rather than those who tried to stop it, will be recognised as criminals. This day will come as inevitably as spring follows even the coldest winter. And then our society will open its eyes and be horrified by what terrible crimes were committed on its behalf. From this realisation, from this reflection, 
this long, difficult but vital path towards the recovery and restoration of Russia, its return to the community of civilised countries, will begin. Even today, even in the darkness surrounding us, even sitting in this cage, I love my country and believe in our people. I believe that we can walk this path. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.